Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi everyone and welcome to On The House, the Household Management Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with expert knowledge from professionals in the field. I'm your host, Gabriella Yastra, coming to you from NAM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm here today with freelance writer Sharon Frank, who specializes in testing and writing about kitchen equipment. How are you today? I'm great. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you too. Um, so we're here today to talk about uh, which kitchen appliances we actually need and what appliances uh, we should invest in. Um, but before we get going, um, would you like to uh, talk a bit about yourself? Sure. So I always like to say that I was the original foodie. From the time I was born, I was always craving food experiences. I just wanted to cook as much as I could. Um, and I went to cooking school. I did graduate from college, from university, I think you call it in Australia. And but I then went to cooking school and took professional cooking classes. And I did work for seven years as a professional chef. But being a professional chef is, and a cook was is a very hard job. It's a blue collar job. And I realized after a while that that's not what I wanted to do with my life. And I probably wasn't going to be a superstar as a chef. So peeling crates of apples wasn't how I wanted to spend my days. Um, so I started looking for a job as a recipe developer. And I saw an ad in the New York Times, which is how jobs were generally found in those days, here in New York anyway. And I saw a job for a microwave recipe tester. And I just needed a job. So I went in for the interview. And in those days, they really, it was the beginning of the celebration of the chef. So they were very impressed by the fact that I had a chef's background and wanted to hire me. And I remember my boss saying to me, I'm really impressed with your your cooking skills, but I'm worried about your writing skills. And I was like totally taken aback. I felt like I was college educated. I was a good writer. It never occurred to me that that could be an issue. And I started the job. And at the beginning, I was primarily developing re recipes to be used in the microwave oven, something I knew nothing about. But I just, again, I needed a job. I said I could do it. Um, I don't think I started the job for about a month. So I borrowed my next door neighbor's microwave. I didn't even have a microwave and, and taught myself how to use it. And as part of being a microwave, it, the microwave department also covered other appliances. So I started to write about other appliances. And it turned out, you know, for me, it was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me because although I thought I would have preferred to be a recipe developer, there are lots and lots of recipe developers, but there's not that many appliance experts. And it really allowed me to develop a niche and to develop a specialty that's unique and to develop an expertise and a reputation that I probably wouldn't have been able to, to get anyplace else. And actually where I worked started as the microwave um, 
tester was at Good Housekeeping magazine. And I stayed there for 30 years and for 30 years, you know, worked my way up. And most of those 30 years, I was managing the testing lab for kitchen appliances at Good Housekeeping. It developed a lot of standards for testing appliances, got to know appliance manufacturers, and really dig in deep, which I found is what I like to do. And I also was good at writing. So I was able to really combine my love for food in a unique way with a talent for writing. That's amazing. I would never have thought that that would have been a job Um, and that you would, I guess, start off with a background as as a chef and then, you know, it's just so different. You know, when you like to cook, you're interested in the ki- in kitchen equipment. And again, initially, I didn't think that's what I wanted to specialize in. But it, as I said, I developed an area that was unique to me and that I love to do. And, you know, and I, I feel, you know, it's funny because I feel like I really know what works and what doesn't work. You know, I've tested almost every knife out there, every set of cookware out there. I know the differences. And you know, I hear what people say, and a lot of what people say is accurate, but sometimes one person will say something and it just gets passed on and everybody believes it, especially if it's in a somewhat prestigious publication here in, in the States. And I've, you know, I feel like I really know. I know what works, what doesn't work, what's good and what's bad. And sometimes it is the most expensive product, but sometimes it's not. You know, there are certain brands, they'll be best in every single category and then a category will come along and it just can't excel in that category but everybody just thinks oh that's the brand i want because that brand has the reputation so you know it it's a good feeling just personally to know this and you know and it it is helpful and i also feel like i had a career where i was able to help people i was able to help people people make decisions it's funny i was recently at a new doctor's and, you know, the doctor's in the examining room and he said to me, so what do you do for a living? And of course I told him and he, like he stops and he says, oh, what do you think about the Breville toaster oven? <laughs> and from there we got into a whole, you know, conversation about appliances, you know, and he was just as interested in, in my expertise and in how I could help his wife in his kitchen as I was, you know, in hearing what he had to say about me. So funny story. Yeah. Um, so we'll start off by getting into the rapid fire questions. So that's um, sort of just like a, a warm up um, where you just say the first thing that comes into your mind. Um, so uh, what's your favorite book? Jane Eyre. So Jane Eyre has been my favorite book since I was a young girl. It was probably, I always, even as a young child, was a prolific reader. And I always loved books about girls that were outsiders and that had a strive to overcome being different. And Jane Eyre was probably the first somewhat adult version of that genre that I read. And I go back to it all the time and I still love it. Not so much for the Gothic story, but just for the idea of this, you know, this girl who was so hard up and had so little in life and how much she achieved. Um, So what's a movie or a uh, documentary um, that you love? Well, my favorite movie of all time is probably Lost in Translation. And I love the subtlety of it. I, 
I love, I love the way both of them were lost, not only in Japan, but just in their own personal lives in a way, the way these two people who were so different in age and so different in their stages of life were able to communicate with each other in such a subtle way. And I love the way they, it was always kept subtle. They never really did anything to embrace their love. They separated at the end. They were both mature enough to know that they really couldn't be a couple. But the subtlety of it is just has always spoken to me. I've probably seen that movie dozens of times. Um, uh, is there a podcast that you love at the moment? Well, my favorite podcast right now is called Living the Dream. Um, it's produced by La Dames de Scoffier, New York, which is an organization that I belong to. It's an organization of professional women. And again, it's a podcast that really focuses on women and, and their careers and how they built their careers. So I love that. And I have been featured on that podcast as well. We'll have to check it out then. Um, is there an app that you like using? Or I love to use the most Instagram. I, you know, I look at Instagram all day long. I love Instagram. I love the pictures. I love catching up with people. I love finding people um, like a zillion other people. I became a sourdough bread baker during pandemic and my feed now is filled with sourdough breads. And I love looking at them. I love seeing people demonstrate their techniques. And I, you know, there are people I haven't seen in 10, 20, or longer years, but I love being able to see what they're up to. Um, is there a course that you, you've completed recently? I haven't completed a course recently. No, I haven't. Uh, you know, I after college, as I said, I took a lot of pastry making and cooking courses, and they were invaluable to me. And what about an event you've attended? So just uh, a week ago Saturday, I went to a, an event here in New York called Cherry Bomb, and it's, I think this was the ninth, um, the ninth happening. Um, it hadn't happened for the last two years because of the pandemic and everybody was so happy to be together, but it's really, um, an event that celebrates women in the culinary world. And it brings a lot of people together. And, the thing that I particularly love this year is that it was very inspirational. It wasn't informational. So everybody that came out was inspiring. You know, there were people of all ages and all different careers within the food industry, but everybody had overcome some adversity. There was even one chef who's, I think her company was called Soul and Wheels, and she's in a wheelchair. And it wasn't informational. Usually the conference, you know, there'll be a sex session on how to brand yourself or how to cook or how to write a cookbook. And there was nothing like that. And in a way it was better because it couldn't disappoint because very often when you go to something that's informational, you don't get what you're expecting to get. And you say, oh, what did they say? But everybody had a really positive message. I mean, you could just feel the energy in the room. There were 700 women at the conference and lots of networking opportunities before, in the middle, and afterward as well. Lots of yummy cocktails and snacks. And I guess it's good um, after, you know, two years of um, not great times, it's good to be inspired to, to continue. Yeah, absolutely. You just, you could feel the energy 
bursting out of the room. The keynote speaker uh, for the conference was Rachel Ray, and she was incredibly inspiring. She comes across as you know, I must say, I never sat home and watched a TV show, so I didn't know her that well from TV. But when she speaks, she comes across as such a real person, and she's so self-effacing, and she's also so incredibly generous in her spirit. Um, you know, she's so concerned about, she really presented a model that spoke to me. She said, you know, first you think about what you need, then you think about what your people need, the people that work for you, and then you think, you know, about what does the general community need? What can I give back on a larger sense? And it's only after that you, that you start to think about the gravy. How many houses do you need or do I need a boat? And it was a, it was a beautiful message, you know, and it really spoke to me. And I believe she said that she had given away something like $66 million over the course of her work life. So I mean, how could you not be inspired by that? It was like the ultimate inspiring talk. And she was interviewed by a journalist here in, well, she's based in Atlanta, Georgia, but she works for the New York Times. But, you know, she didn't have to even ask her a question. She just, once Rachel starts, gets going, she just talks. She knows how to deliver the message. And That'd I'm be... Uh... That was the last speaker, so I think it really ended on a high with that. And, of course, I think usually there's a few men in the audience. I didn't see any men this year, maybe one, and no male speakers whatsoever. And, you know, there was one speaker who came up, and she had her baby in her arms, and she her toddler in her arms, and she put the toddler down, and the toddler was eating um, Cheerios while – while she was speaking, there was another woman who was maybe nine months pregnant. So it's such a, a rich feeling of it being women and of accepting women and understanding. You know, to me, the message was women have children and they can be difficult to deal with when you work, but they don't have to be an impediment. You know, women can still work even though their mothers and pregnant. So to me, that was part of the inspiration of the conference that not saying, oh, you don't have a babysitter today, you can't come, you can't speak. It's the whole um, uh, not stopping women from being able to participate because they have children. Exactly, exactly. So, I, you know, I thought it really just like it personified the, the message that the conference was giving, that we're women and we have children and we can still work and we can still contribute and make a difference. And nobody was, you know, worried about Cheerios on the floor of the, the not the podium, the stage. So we'll uh, move on to the interview, if that's okay. That's great. Yeah. Um, so uh, why do you think household management is important um, just in general? Well, I think it's, as with anything, I think it's important to have order and to have discipline in your life. And I think it's important for a variety of reasons. The most important part, most important ones are probably the most obvious is that it's orderly. You know where things are. Um, you don't buy 16 things because you don't know where one, the others are. You know what you have. You know, it saves you money. It saves you time. But I think it also, even more than that, it empowers you and makes you feel good about yourself because 
people want to feel like they're in control of their lives. You know, it's, there's a lot of things that it's hard to control, but you can control your household and you can keep it orderly and you can manage it. And it gives a sense of, of satisfaction and a sense of pride and a sense of just feeling, in general, feeling good about yourself and that you're, you can do it. So I think it's very important. And what about some misconceptions? Um, yeah. Well, you know, people think it's just too hard and they think it's hard to do when they don't want to put in the time and energy to do it. It's time consuming. But, you know, you see so many articles about how to manage your home. And sometimes I think, really, do people still need information about it? But clearly they do because it continues to be an issue. But you know, I'm very, I, I'm a person who believes everything should have a place and I like to organize everything according to what it is. So I tend to like a somewhat messy aesthetic. I don't like things that are totally clean and barren, but so I'll have a lot of canisters with um, tools in my kitchen, but all of the wooden spoons are in one, all of the whisks are in another. And the one for the, with the wooden spoons is always in one place. And the one for the whisks is always in the other place. So when I need a whisk, I know where it is. When I need a measuring spoon, I know they're in the measuring spoon case. I mean, I guess like almost everyone, I do have one junk drawer where there's a lot of stuff that somehow didn't fit someplace else, but I rarely need to go to that. For the most part, when I walk into my kitchen to start either working or testing an appliance or cooking or whatever I'm doing, I know where things are and I make sure they go back in that place. Yeah, there's nothing worse than getting halfway through making a cake and you can't find the right spatula. Yeah. So, I mean, I know where everything is and, and I, you know, it may be part of a sense of getting older, but I feel like the older I get, the more organized I become so that I lay out even more things. And, you know, in French cooking, there's a term called mise en place, which basically means getting all of your ingredients in order before you start cooking um, so that you're not scurrying around looking for things. But I kind of apply the same principle more and more to my tools. So I'll make sure, you know, that I have the tools out. I make rice a lot and, you know, I know that I like to use a certain fork to fluff the rice and a certain spoon to serve the rice. And when, after I put the rice on to cook, I put out the spoon and fork so that when the rice is ready, finished cooking, I'm ready, you know, and, I'm not scrounging around. And if for some reason the spoon and fork I like aren't clean, I can wash it ahead of time. I'm not washing it, you know, at the same time that I'm trying to put dinner on the table. And I guess that means that food goes on the table faster, so it's not cooling down. Food goes on the table faster. Um, yeah, it goes out when it's hot or when it's properly cooked. And there's no scrounging around. There's no panicking at the end. So... You know, I do, as I said, I find I get more and more organized as time goes on, but I think a certain degree of organization is important. Um, so you said that you, you're quite minimalist with your kitchen appliances, um, yes. Yeah, so in spite of the fact that I test kitchen equipment 
for a living. And I've tested, I mean, I recently finished a test of spiralizers. I've tested mandolins. I've tested just, I mean, you name it and I've tested it. But in my own kitchen, I tend to be a minimalist. So I, for example, I like to make coffee, a pour over coffee. What's now very trendy is a pour over coffee. I've made coffee like that my entire life. I, people come into my kitchen and are just stunned that I don't have an electric coffee maker. Um, I do have a toaster oven, which I use a lot. And, you know, if we could talk about it a little later on, but I think a toaster of some sort is probably something everybody else needs. But those are the only two appliances that I have out and ready to go at all times. I do have hand and stand mixes that I wouldn't want to live without when I bake. Um, and I think anyone who bakes needs them. But, you know, rice is a good example. I, I you know, I must say, I'm, I'm, don't eat, we don't eat huge quantities of rice. And at this point in time, we're only two people in the house. So I don't use a rice cooker. I f feel like it's very easy to make rice in a pot. I've been making it my whole life in a pot. It's like, learn how to use it. You don't need a, a rice cooker. Um, you know, it's, I hate, I kind of hate to say it because I don't like to shoot what I do in the foot, but you know, people love slow cookers and I've tested slow cookers over and over again, but recently I was testing them and I thought I could have made this in a skillet in 20 minutes. It didn't have to cook for four and a half hours in a slow cooker. It's like, I don't really get it. Um, but, you know, I can segue into that now. I'm kind of thinking about the list of questions in my head. But what I say to people is they really, the first thing you really need to do when you're buying appliances is think about how you cook and what you actually need and not think, oh, if I have a better tool, I'll be a better cook. And I was thinking about this yesterday. One of my, another one of my favorite movies is a, an old movie by Albert Brooks called Modern Love. I don't know if you've seen it. He breaks up with his girlfriend. He's, he breaks up with her and then he's sorry he broke up with her. So he decides he's going to reinvent himself. He's going to get himself in shape. And he goes to the sporting goods store. This is going to run. He's going to be a runner. He goes to the sporting goods store and he buys, you know, a whole expensive outfit, you know, from a headband to a, something to carry money in while he runs to expensive running shoes. He gets out onto the track and he starts to run and he runs right to the nearest telephone booth and calls up his girlfriend. <laughs> and that's it. That's the end of the running shoes. And, you know, that's what I think. You know, people say, I'm going to buy an instant pot and then I'll make chicken soup for dinner every day. Or, you know, I'm going to buy a slow cooker and then I can make, you know, beef stew all the time. But people have to be really, I think, realistic about whether they want to cook those things. What You need to put time into preparing food. Even if you could cook it in a slow cooker or an instant pot, are you willing to do that? And you know, as I said before, I started baking sourdough bread during the pandemic. And I bake bread almost every, I'd say once a week now. And I still just put the bread in a tea cloth, a, t a bowl lined with a tea cloth. It's only about two weeks ago that I said to myself, 
you know, maybe I'll buy a bread basket for my bread. Like um, now I know I really like to bake bread. I can spend the $20 on the bread basket. But you can say I'm going to bake sourdough bread and just order, you know, 50 things. And then, you know, after two weeks, you decide this isn't for me. It's too much work. So you people have to sit down and think realistically about what they actually need. Um, you know, and not buy expensive appliances that they, they're never going to open or that are going to be in the tag sale after one use. And, you know, probably the best example of that type of appliance is the juicer. So that's another good example. People think, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to make juice. I'm going to juice. And they buy this expensive, complicated appliance that only does one thing, that all it does is juice. And it requires a huge amounts of fruits and vegetables that are expensive. And a lot of the fruits and vegetables are going into the garbage because it's pulp. And, you know, after a short time, that thing isn't being used anymore. So, you know, people, before somebody buys a juicer, I think they should decide they really want to drink juice every single day and they're not satisfied with the juice that they can buy. Is there a way that you can... I don't know, I guess borrow equipment um, to try it out? Would you recommend doing that? Well, you know, I don't know of an organized way that you could do that, but you certainly, like I said, when I started my career, I borrowed a microwave from my next door neighbor. Um, you know, certainly somebody could borrow equipment from a friend and see how much they liked using it. If they had, you know, a friend or a relative that was willing to lend them something, I think it would be smart because, you know, especially if it's something they're not sure of. If you know that you're a baker and you like to bake, I'd say go ahead and spring for a stand mixer or a hand mixer. It's That's something of a no-brainer. Um, again, I think, you know, most people drink coffee. They need some kind of method for making coffee, whether it's, you know, a pour-over filter or a coffee maker. And most people like toasted bread, so they need some kind of toaster. But beyond that, it's hard for me to think about something that everybody needs. I mean, blenders, you know, are really indispensable if you drink a lot of smoothies or if you make a lot of soups. Um, and, you know, you really do need them if that's what you do. But again, you know, owning the appliances isn't going to make you a cook. So if you're making soup, you know, and you've made soup a lot and you try to strain it and you're like sick of pour it, putting it through a food mill or you think it's not smooth enough from a food processor, let's say, yeah, go ahead and get a blender. It'll make your life a lot easier. But it's, just, it's not going to turn you into a cook by owning the blender. It's, it's kind of the same thing as, you know, this guy buying all this running equipment. Owning the running equipment isn't going to make him a runner. He would have been better off running in his, you know, tennis shoes for a month and saying, gee, I really love running, but I could use a better pair of shoes rather than starting out by spending, you know, when you see the movie now, I think it was maybe $100 for all the equipment. It, probably the shoes themselves would be $200 now, but. You know, so it's not going to turn you into a cook. It's not going to make you healthier. So there, 
Well, appliances are tools that are supposed to make your life easier, but they're not going to change your habits for you. So you're better off changing your habits first and then buying the tools to support your your habits or your practices rather than starting with the equipment. But, you know, I it's hard to tell people that, you know. Um, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> thinking about your own closet and what's sitting. I am thinking <laughs> Well, so I was thinking about mine and actually I um we've got quite a small kitchen and we've already got quite a few appliances and I think that we use most of the appliances actually. So during the pandemic, my partner wanted to buy a coffee machine and I was really against it. Because we had had a coffee machine and it had broken down and he never washed the coffee machine. We used it a couple times and then it just sat on the counter and I, I hated it. And so when he suggested getting a replacement coffee machine, I was like, no, you won't use it. You'll never use it. It'll just take up space. Um, I'll have to clean it. Um, and you know what? After a couple months, he was like, no, I really want one. I'm just going to buy one. So he bought one and he uses it every single day and he makes me a coffee every single day. <laughs> so, yeah, I think because it was something that he had thought about for more than, you know, for two more than two minutes, I think it ended up being a good purchase. Well, and I mean, let's face it, for most of us, most of us drink coffee. So, and it was hard to go out and, and buy coffee during the pandemic. Mm. So... It totally makes sense. I drink instant coffee, so the coffee (laughs) machine wasn't necessarily for me. But, yeah, he's more picky about what he drinks. Um, But but I have to say, you know, over and over again, I've brought espresso machines into the house. Maybe they've been gifted to me or I've tested them and haven't had to give them back. And I'll get really excited how I'm going to have an espresso machine. I'm going to make cappuccino. And it'll sit in the kitchen for, you know a week, a month. And then after a while, it's like, this is just too much trouble. I have to clean this thing all the time. You know, it's a whole process. I'm used to making coffee. I only get this little cup. I like my big mug. And the thing eventually disappears from the kitchen. And I also have a small kitchen. So, you know, think about a lot about what I want to dedicate space to. And, you know, and I certainly know in the UK that they depend very heavily on electric kettles. I don't know if that's the case in Australia as well. I would say so. Yeah, they're not. I've always had an electric kettle. Yeah, they're not used that much here in the States for whatever reason. Here in the States, they're viewed as a tool for elderly people who might leave the flame on or the burner on. So people buy it for their elderly parents so that they don't have to worry about them burning the house down. But it's not used as much by the general public. That's so funny. It's been in like every single house that I've lived in. Um, I find it so useful. And there was only one place I lived in that didn't have a kettle. And I constantly left the elect- like the, the kettle on the stove and it would boil dry because I'm so used to it. Yeah, I mean, we, we do use a kettle every day because we make pour over coffee, but I'm very aware that that's a very basic piece of equipment for probably everyone in the UK, for sure. 
So what are some other kitchen equipment that you would recommend um, or that you think every household should have, like knives, you know, chopping boards? Yeah, so I think every kitchen needs a good set of pots. And again, they don't necessarily need a huge array, but they need a few skillets and a few different sizes. Um, Can I, what is a skillet? So a skillet is a long, it's like a fry pan. So it's a shallow pot with shallow sides. And the the word fry pan, saute pan, and skillet are used somewhat interchangeably. Technically, a saute pan has very straight sides, and they might be a little bit higher, whereas a skillet will have a slope's edge. So with a skillet, you might you'd turn out an omelet, let's say, whereas in a straight-sided saute pan, you might make something like cocoa van where you're browning the chicken and then cooking it in a sauce. But all three can be used interchangeably. And I think people should have an eight inch size for making an omelet or just making scrambled eggs for yourself for dinner. Um, A 10 inch size is a good size for maybe making chops or hamburgers. And then I think everybody needs a 12 inch size. Well, anyone who cooks at all, because in a 12 inch size, you really, you could make chili, you could make stew, you could make, unless you have really a lot of sauce, you could make just about anything. Um, And then people need a Dutch oven, uh, people who cook need a Dutch oven. And that would be for a larger roast or bigger quantity of soup. And and that could even double as a pot for boiling water for pasta. I mean, technically the right, you know, people who are serious about pasta or about cooking will always say, you need an eight quart um, pasta pot to boil water. You need a lot of water. And that's true but you could get away with a six quart Dutch oven if you really wanted to be minimalist about things. And, you know, and then when it comes to saucepans, again, you know, I used to use a lot of saucepans until the microwave came into my life. But now I think the only thing I really use a saucepan for is rice, because if I'm reheating, if I'm warming up soup, you know, or warming up vegetables, I do it in the microwave. So I don't use that many saucepans, but yet saucepans, come in every set. So when you buy a whole set, you you could be getting a lot of pieces that you're never going to use. So, you know, sets are a great buy from a, you know, money-wise, they're a great buy if you need all the pieces in the set. If you don't need all the pieces, you just wind up with a lot of stuff you don't need. So people should, in addition to looking at the brand and the materials, they should look at the pieces in the set and see if the pieces meet their needs. Because sometimes it'll say, it could say a 10 piece set, but if a lot of the pieces are small and you have a large family, you're not going to have what you need. So generally I like sets that include larger pieces because they give you more capabilities to cook more food. Um, But I think everyone does need a good set of cookware and and everybody needs not sharp knives. Knives is the trickiest thing to talk about, to be honest, because in order to really be effective and to cut well, a knife needs to be sharp. But 
it's not easy to keep knives sharp. People buy a set of knives and bring them home and immediately say they weren't sharp. And it takes, you have to be willing to put some work into sharpening them. And, you know, serrated knives or so-called never needs sharpening knives are much maligned. People, you know, everybody turns their noses up at them. They would never be recommended by any magazine. But I always say you're better off with a knife like that a $300 knife that's dull because mm-hmm. you, they're just, they're not usable. So, I mean, it's a hard thing to talk about because if you, the right answer was what I believe is that everybody needs three knives, a chef's knife, a paring knife, and a, a serrated bread knife, but those knives need to be sharp. And if they're not sharp, it's just useless. You could just use one serrated knife. It's a really hard message to, to get across. And, you know, I do encourage people to buy. There's so many sharpeners on the market now that are easy to use. They hold the knife in the right place, so there's no skill involved. But they still t- they still take some time, and there is a big difference in the quality of the edge. But when you talk about a knife's edge and about sharpening a knife, a lot of what you're talking about is microscopic. You can't really see it. So you could talk and talk about it, but it's almost meaningless to people because they don't see it. But an expensive ni- electric knife sharpener will put a real edge on a knife, and gadgets generally won't, but they will make them cut better. So, you know, anything that's sharp is better than anything that's dull. So would you recommend... Um, just buying any of the knife sharpeners or would you recommend getting a professional sharpening service? I think Um, professional services are great. The problem with professional services is that chances are people are only going to use them once a year, maybe before the holidays. And if you only do have three knives, chances are your knives are going to need to be sharpened more than once a year. Um, And if you have a tool in the house, you can do it more often and, you know, it, it really doesn't take that long. So you can do it, you know, in a few minutes and you're ready. Whereas if you take them to a service, sometimes you have to mail them in or you have to leave them in the store and pick them up in a week, you know, plus the expense, you're going to pay for the sharpening. But really the very best sharpeners are the electric, are electrically operated. You know, when you I hate to tell people to do this, but when you run your finger along the edge of a knife that's been sharpened on an electric sharpener, you can feel that it's been ground to a smooth, fine edge. And when you use the little tools, even from a good manufacturer, when you run your finger across, it's almost like it's turned it into a micro serrated knife. You can feel it'll be very sharp, but it definitely has little teeth around the edge, but on a microscopic level. But still, even those little gadgets, some of them, some of the, they were good ones for as little as $5, $10. It's still better than using a dull knife. And those steels that butchers use are basically useless. So I don't encourage people to, to buy them or even to use them. That's what I've got at home. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of them at home too, but I don't use them at all anymore. They, you know, in a very technical way, they can straighten out. 
the edge, but you need to be able to hold the knife at a very consistent angle as you run it across this the tool. And if you can't maintain that, you're not really helping the knife. So it it as I said, it's hard to talk to consumers about because consumers barely understand what you're talking about. Um, but you know, so many people have big collections of expensive knives, but they complain to me all the time, you know, I bought the Worcester, it's dull, it doesn't work. Well, you know, you have to sharpen it. Even the best knife isn't going to be effective. And, and with, yeah, I'm sorry. And, and one more thing I would say about knives is that knives are very personal. So people really need to, you can buy them online, but it's a good thing to try out in the store and see how it feels in your hands and whether it's comfortable for you. And, and the same with cookware. You know, in general, heavier cookware performs better than lighter cookware, but a lot of it is, you know, how much you like to, ha what, how something feels to you and how much weight you like to have. So it's hard to, you know, make a blanket statement. How often would you recommend to sharpen your knives? So a, a sharp knife should be able to, when you take a piece of paper and you go like this, it should cut immediately. It should make a slash right down. If you take your knife and you run it on a paper and it doesn't cut, it's not sharp if the paper just kind of bends. It also, when you rest it on top of a tomato, it should make a, a, a little slice in the tomato just from resting on it. So it's really not a matter of time. It's a matter of when is it dull? When is it not cutting? If you're starting to cut an onion and it's starting to slide on the onion instead of go down, it's no longer sharp. So how often you have to do it depends a lot on how, how often you use your knife and how much you use it. But if a knife is well sharpened, I would, I would, venture to say people could go three months without sharpening it. And, you know, most of these knife sharpeners have, they have different degrees of sharpening. So you might not have to do it on the finest one. You might be able to do it on the, the, the middle one if, you know, if you do it often. But if it starts to get really dull, you really have to start. And, you know, and I'll say another thing, you do, every time you sharpen it, you do remove a little bit of the edge. And that's why very often in a butcher shop, you'll see very thin knives, long, thin knives. And sometimes it's because so much, they sharpen them so often that so much of the knife has been worn away. And very often people will say to me, I don't want to sharpen my knife because I'm taking away the edge. And Yes, you are, but you know, so what, you know, it's like you could have a beautiful knife that has its whole edge, but you can't cut an onion with it. And you're not buying the knife for it to look good in your kitchen or to pass it on to your children. You're buying it to cut a tomato. And, you know, if you're going to have that kind of feeling about it, that you're using up the knife, then you know, don't buy a $300 knife or even a $100 knife. You could get a good knife for, for a lot less and not worry as much about it. I also imagine it would just take a long time to actually wear away a knife to nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I had, have in the past, when I worked in restaurants, I had knives that, you know, where the shape was changed, but they were sharpened every week. So it would take, nobody's going to sharpen their knives every week. So.
So I just don't think it's something people have to worry about. So uh, what other kitchen equipment um, would you recommend? So or should again, everyone have? So again, um, a food process is very handy. If you don't, I personally really like using a knife. So I tend to cut with a knife, but they can do a good job of things like chopping onions if it's something you're not really that comfortable doing. Um, they're great for things like grating Parmesan cheese, making breadcrumbs, grating parsley. Again, if you don't really like knife skills, a food processor is a great is a great tool. They they work really well, and you know, occasionally. You know, I don't use mine that often, but if I'm making, in the summer, I'll pull it out a lot to make pesto. I confess I don't use a mortar and a pestle. I find it just difficult to do, and I am fine with doing it in the food processes. So I tend to pull it out a lot in the summer because I feel like that's something you really need to do in a food processor, you know, because you'll, with a food processor, you'll still get some texture, whereas in the blender, it's very easy to destroy the texture of the nuts and, and the, and the basil. Um, as I said, a blender, I think, I think it has a lot of applications and a lot of people will need a blender. And I think people should just think carefully about whether they need it. Um, you know, again, um, uh, an instant pot or even a stovetop pressure cooker is a great tool. They perform really well. Um, they do a fantastic, uh, you know, I prefer an instant pot or a pressure cooker to a slow cooker. I think they do a better job of actually cooking and they cook more quickly. And I think for somebody who's willing to put in some time and effort into food preparation, into cutting things up and seasoning things carefully, but maybe doesn't want something simmering for three hours. I think something that could do it in 45 minutes is a great tool. But again, you know, you know, certainly the pressure, the instant pot has been a runaway success in the last 10 to 15 years, but you know, and, and I, I do think they get used by some people, but I think there's a lot of them that have been bought on impulse because there's been such a craze for them. And I do, instead of a toaster, I use a toaster oven and I find that I will do, you know, I, I'll roast vegetables. I don't bake in it at all and I don't, cook, I don't cook much meat in it, but I'll do a lot of roasting of vegetables in it or warming up of pizza. So for me, it's really indispensable. It's something I wouldn't want to live without. So I think having a toaster oven gives you a lot more, you know, just it can do more than just toast and it could also toast. And I think, you know, again, people have to think about what they actually cook, what kind of foods. If people put every, I, I, and again, I have a microwave and, you know, there's some backlash against the microwave, especially here in New York City. But statistics tell us that probably 90% of all homes have a microwave oven for, if for nothing else, for reheating. And, you know, that's something I wouldn't want to live without. And if people are happy with the way food comes out reheated in, in the microwave oven and don't miss the crisping that you get for it, 
then maybe they don't need a toaster oven. And, and we really should talk about the air fryer because the air fryer has been, you know, the, the biggest sensation, I would say, of the last five years. Um, I've tested many of them. And I'm not, I don't have one in my own kitchen. I'm not a, a huge fan of them. Um, and, I, you know, first of all, they're not really frying. So what they're doing, it's kind of like oven, oven frying or crisping may be better than an oven, maybe with more air movement and more heat than in an oven. But if you eat foods, if you see food and eat food side by side that's been cooked in oil and that food's been in an air fryer, it's not the same thing. And when you drop food into oil, the food cooks to an internal doneness at the same time that it's crisping. So you get a food that's not only crispy outside, but it's perfectly cooked inside. But when you cook food in, when you cook meat in an air fryer, inevitably it's going to be cooked to a higher temperature than it needs to be in order to be crisp. So I, but I know that people love them and people do use them all the time, people who have them. Um, so I don't really know how to explain it. I was also been really surprised when I test them that they can do a nice job of cooking hamburgers and or even steaks and they don't make as much of a mess. So the grease, because it's a, an enclosed appliance, it keeps the grease inside. Whereas when you cook hamburgers in a pan, you're gonna get splatters or even in the oven. And they actually also even do a credible job of roasting a chicken without spattering. But I think most people are buying them for food that's supposedly fried, but I personally don't see a big difference between chicken nuggets that are cooked in the regular toaster oven and cooked in the air fryer. But yeah, I, yeah, sorry. No, but you know, the public proves me wrong because I, I know that people not only buy them, but they love them. So I actually borrowed one because um, I was thinking about, do I want one? There seems to be this huge craze for them. So I borrowed one. Um, and I mean, I don't eat that much fried food at home because I'd rather go out and have fried food. It's much, very much of a hassle. So I was using it mostly for like roasting. Uh -huh. And I just found it wasn't, it sort of did the same job as the oven, but I had to like look after it more. And I could only do one thing at a time. Well, that's true. Um, you can only do one yeah. thing at a time. Look, I say that about all these countertop ovens. There's very few homes that don't have an oven. And it's just not that hard to use an oven. So I don't understand why people need another oven. Like, like a lot of these big countertop ovens do do a very good job. But like, why do you need it? Why can't you put it in your oven? And ovens themselves are so sophisticated these days that but having said that when i roasted a chicken in the the thing i liked about the air fryer for roasting the chicken surprisingly was it didn't splatter so you know there's nothing to my mind nothing one of the first things i ever learned to make was a roast chicken in the oven and there's nothing as delicious as an oven roasted chicken 
but it does make for a messy oven. And, you know, in it, there's no splattering in, in the air fryer. You take it out and you put the dish, usually you can, can go right in the dishwasher and, and that's it. So I was, I was surprised, I was surprised myself that I saw a benefit to it. And it doesn't really crisp on the bottom, but it's hard to get it crisp on the bottom, even in the regular oven, unless you turn it. So, you know, I thought I was surprised at how well it did on that, but I don't think that's what most people are buying it for. I think they're doing things like chicken cutlets and Brussels sprouts is another thing people seem to like to make and I tried that. <laughs> yeah, that's it was like as good as I could do it in the oven. Yeah, that's what I I don't really get it, but and you know, people will make chicken cutlets and they're crispy, but they take like oven baked chicken cutlets. They don't take like chicken cutlets that were made in oil. They're just not the same. But it's been a, they have, that category has been a phenomenon. And I've probably in the last five years tested it more than any other category because there's so much interest in it. But, um, yeah, I would say that's probably one of the hottest things right now. How, so when you, so we've talked about, um, what kitchen appliances we should have, but um, once you've, you know, decided I need these types of kitchen appliances, how do you decide, uh, which ones to, to purchase and which ones to invest your money in? Well, I would encourage people to go to review sites and see what they recommend. And I would strongly encourage them to go to sites where they're actually tested by the organization. So, Good Housekeeping in the United States, and I believe in the UK also actually tests appliances. Review.com here in the States tests appliances. Consumer Reports, obviously. I don't know how, you know, how popular it is in Australia, but they test things. So Wirecutter here in, in the United States, which is owned by the New York Times, tests products. So when things are actually tested, you're going to get better reviews. And you know, you can also cross-reference. So very often the same sites will recommend the same appliances and you know that they're probably good because more than one tester is recommending them. Cooks Illustrated or America's Test Kitchen, which is the same company, is another very reputable company here in the States. But, you know, I would encourage people to find out in Australia whatever's available to them who is actually doing the testing. And I will say, you know, that for the most part, I'm sorry to have to say that, but for the most part, the more expensive appliances do perform better. Um, you don't necessarily have to buy the most expensive ones, you know. So, for example, I just tested slow cookers and, you know, without a doubt, any that were $100 and up did better than the ones that were $30. But one for $150 did just as well as one that was for, was $300. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, necessary to spend the ultimate amount of money unless, you know, sometimes what you're getting for the extra money is a better looking appliance. And it might be more durable in that it's made of sturdier materials. But 
it still might not, you know, people have $30 slow cookers for 30 years. So it's not necessarily that the one that costs $300 is going to, you know, be with you for 30 years and the $150 one is going to die. But, you know, more expense, but sometimes there are sleepers or there are very good ones for less. And that's why I think it's a really, if you don't have extra money to spend and it's not critical to you what the appliance looks like, it's a good idea to go to these review sites because very often their best buy or their value is indeed a very good value or a best buy because it'll do a good job without putting you up over that hundred dollar limit. And, you know, most, most of the best ones do tend to cost over a hundred dollars, but I'm very well aware that over a hundred dollars is a lot of money for most people to spend on a small appliance. Um, they do then tend to be more stainless steel and to be better looking. And now again, you know, that's a judgment people have to make for themselves. How important is the way it looks to you? Um, and are you willing to spend the extra? And then of course, you know, features are a funny thing because features add to the price. But sometimes I think retailers like to carry products with more features. So it's sometimes hard, like with a coffee maker, you might not want a programmable one. A lot of people don't. Oops, sorry, my computer's doing something weird. A lot of times... Um, A lot of times the retailers, well, I was saying about the programmable ones, a lot of people don't bother to actually program their coffee makers, but almost everybody's coffee maker can be programmed to start in the morning and you'll pay extra for that feature. But sometimes it's hard to find one that isn't programmable in the stores because I think the manufacturers like to carry the ones with extra features because they can get you to spend more money on an appliance, especially if you're buying it in a better retailer. But you know, if you truly don't need a programmable coffee maker, it's worth, and you, and money really is of the essence to you, it's worth, you know, looking around, trying to find the one that doesn't have that feature. And you'll also get a cleaner interface and you'll get something that's easier to use. I, I just tested a slow cooker that really it was, you know, I think I think it was a $300 slow cooker and it did a beautiful job of cooking, but it had so many programs and I myself can't even explain to you what was the difference between all of them or why you needed them. And it made it hard to program the thing because you had to scroll through so many options and it was so easy to make a mistake. So, you know, more isn't necessary. More is only better if you're going to use everything that it has to offer. But, you know, most people are probably only going to use low and high on a slow cooker. And I think this one, you know, it had so many options, it was hard to differentiate between them. Like, why do you need that much? You know, and it probably you're getting to some extent your money's worth. It's what's making it cost more but you don't need that. It's overkill for you. But I do find, you know, I do find that there are different types of shoppers. You know, I, I know my friends and relatives, <laughs> the people that come to me for advice. And there are some people that they just want that premium product. They want the product. 
Um, do you have William Sonoma in in Australia? Is that familiar to you? No. So William Sonoma not. is a very is probably the premium retailer of kitchen equipment here in the United States, and it's an interesting store in that I say they always they do a lot of curating. So whatever they have is beautiful and expensive, and they do some testing. So it's probably pretty good. It's not for the person. So a lot of brides go there who high brides who are looking for high end kitchen because they'll have everything and you don't have to make that many decisions. You don't have to think about what to buy. And, you know, there are certain people they want, they're the William Sonoma customer. They want that thing that looks stainless steel and looks expensive and looks shiny and they want it almost to have the stamp of approval from William Sonoma. They don't they don't want to they don't want the thrill of maybe finding it at Target or Walmart or at a low end retailer. They want it to come from William Sonoma. So, you know, sometimes it's hard to talk people out of out of what they want. Um so what's um What's your favorite kitchen uh, kitchen equipment or appliance? Like, what do you use the most at home? Okay, so I love my Breville toaster oven. I I use it almost every day. Um, that's why I laughed when the doctor asked me about it because it is, you know, one thing I use a lot. Um, I have a Melita plastic pour over filter that gets used in my house twice a day. Um, I love my KitchenAid mixer. I think the KitchenAid mixer is one of, you know, the most, you know, one of my favorite kitchen appliances, at least in theory. And I do pull it out when I bake, but I don't use it to make sourdough bread. I do that totally by hand. So, and I don't bake every, every day anymore. I don't have young children at home. So I think when I was younger and I had, you know, my daughter was younger and I entertained more, I probably would have used it every day. And it was the first piece of kitchen equipment that I bought for myself once I had my own kitchen. It was something my mother didn't have and that I knew I wanted. So, you know, to me, it's a KitchenAid stand mixer is irreplaceable for anyone who bakes. So, you know, the, I, I would say by far those are, you know, my two favorite pieces of equipment. And, you know, I have, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you how many knives I have. I have every brand. I'm a big fan of Wustoff knives. And it's partly, I just like the way they feel in my hand, something about the, the weight of the knife. It's not even just the handle, but I like that. I, I have a, a knife that's made by, by a, a, a knife maker called Bob Kramer. I really like his knife too. I find it stays sharp really um, a long time. And I use an Edgecraft, a chef's choice Edgecraft knife sharpener, which I don't know if they're available in Australia, but I think it's, you know, there's, there's no contest. I think there are other stand mixers. I think there are other toaster ovens. I, there's no other knife sharpener that I would use in my own kitchen. Um, and I have an assortment of pots and pans. I use, 
I rely a lot on a cast iron skillet for cooking steaks, for cooking fish, things that I want to have a nice crust. Um, but I, I like nonstick cookware a lot, so I'm not phobic about nonstick cookware, and I don't think you can beat the ease of use of cleaning of cleaning them. So I, you know, but again, you know, I know a lot of people have fears about nonstick, and I say if if that's your thing and you're worried about it, don't use it. You, everybody has to feel comfortable with the decisions they make as to what they use in their own home. And so you, do you have any, sorry. Yeah, no, go on. No, uh, say what you wanted to say. Well, you, you had asked before about cutting boards and, hmm. um, I like the way a wood cutting board feels under the knife. Um, I think plastic cutting boards that are made out of polypropylene also do a very good job. I just, wood is a little softer, so I like the feel of it. And I actually have a very large butcher block and table in my kitchen that I cut on. So I don't use cutting boards most of the time in my own kitchen. Um, I think bamboo cutting boards, which are very much in vogue, are hard on a knife. And so I don't encourage people to use them other than for decorative reasons. And when I say hard on a knife, because they're hard, they will dull the knife more quickly because the knife is coming in contact with a harder surface. And I also think, you know, it's not as clear as it seems that bamboo is sustainable because a lot depends on how the bamboo is processed and how the bamboo is shipped, not just on the fact that bamboo replenishes itself. So I, you know, a bamboo cutting boards are attractive and I think if people like them and they want to use them as cheese boards, be my guest. But I would say for cutting fruits and vegetables, buy a nice wood cutting board or even a nice poly, polypropylene is the most common plastic that's used for, for, for cutting and, and it's fine. The plastic is not significantly harder on your knife than the wood and it's you can just throw the whole thing in the in the dishwasher. So I think that's a very good choice. You know, wood obviously is aesthetically pleasing. So a lot of people like it for that reason. So um, what about um, like cleaning a wooden chopping board? Is that, is it going to be as hygienic as a plastic one? Um, probably not. So as I said, I have a, a very long wooden butcher block that I've used for more years than I want to tell you. And I, I wipe it down with hot water and I will spray bleach on it occasionally. Um, but if I'm cutting meat or fish, I will, especially if I'm cutting up raw fish, I'll bring, I have a, a plastic cutting board and I'll cut on that so that, or even raw meat so that I can then throw it into the dishwasher. Um, or just, you know, really wash it really well in the sink. Um, but I do think, you know, on wood, you, you need to be careful. You probably need to cover it with bleach at least occasionally. And certainly after you've gotten some, cut something, raw meat or poultry of some kind, um, and I'm very careful also to wash any fruits and vegetables before I cut them. 
So if there's any dirt on the outside, it's not going onto the cutting board and then being, you know, transported. If I have to cut a melon in half, I'll cut the melon in half and then I'll usually wash the melon, but even after I've washed the melon, I'll wash the knife again in the cutting surface to try to keep it as clean as possible. Because um, at my, when I was growing up, we always had, we had a mixture of wooden and um, plastic, but I found that, you know, we'd put the wooden one in the sink to wash and after a while it would start to get warped. They do um, tend to get warped. That is a problem. And they do tell you to like weigh them down, wet them and weigh them down to unwarp them. But definitely that's an advantage of plastic ones is that they won't warp. But, you know, I, I have a wooden cutting carving board that I use separately from my general cutting surface. And like, as I said, I have a plastic board that I use. I don't have to worry about the warpage because my table's so, you know, so big and it's not going to warp, but I have seen the boards warp. But there's something very aesthetically pleasing about wood and it also feels very, it, it feels nice under the knife. I, I find that I can, it feels nice. Do you have any other tips for, um, you know, maintaining your kitchen equipment? Well, so I say it. I can't say it enough. Keep everything clean, um, but keep it clean for safety. For safety, not only for food safety, but to prevent fire. You know, if you leave crumbs in your toaster oven or in the bottom of your toaster, they can start a fire. Um, I just encourage people to clean everything after every use as thoroughly as possible. If things go in the dishwasher, go ahead and, you know, I, I think people have to read the manuals carefully and find out whether or not things can go in the dishwasher. If they can, go ahead and put them in the dishwasher where they'll get a really good cleaning. Um, I think with, you know, one of my pet peeves really is stainless steel cookware. People love stainless steel cookware because it looks so good and there's no nonstick surface to worry about. But nonstick uh, stainless steel can get badly stained. It, it's not so much that the metal itself stains, but if you cook over high heat, you get splatters, they burn on. You know, when I was little, I think my mother actually cooked in aluminum, but the outside of all her pans were like black and speckled. And I just thought that's what pots, pots and pans looked like. And I don't think it was until I was an adult that I realized it was just fat that splattered on the edge that she just, I don't want to say didn't bother to clean off, but if you don't clean it off carefully, it starts to build up. So, you know, it's worth spending the time to clean things, you know, spend an extra 10 minutes one time and get rid of it rather than have it build up. And, you know, barkeeper's friend, I don't know if it's available again. I don't know if it's available and is, is, do you know what it is? Not, I've heard of it on the internet, yeah. but I don't know if you can get it in Australia. Yeah. I mean, you certainly could get it from Amazon, but I don't know if they send it to Australia, but it does work wonders on, on cookware of all types and, helps you to maintain it. So I do use it quite a bit, you know, if, if it's important to you. And again, it's important to you if you don't mind having those splatters baked on. It's like, you know, I, I, I'm not judging people. It's just if that's not what you like, you really need to keep ahead of it. Um, 
but just keeping anything clean is going to keep it in, in better working order. So I encourage people to keep things clean. And what about like tips for storage? Um, cause if you've got a lot of kitchen equipment, you know, it can be hard to, to make any bench space. Well, it's hard to store and it's something, you know, when I write about appliances, I always point out how much space they take out and I always, you know, give high points to products that can be stored easily where they either collapse or they part store within themselves or, you know, for small things where they could actually go into a drawer. But obviously, you know, slow cookers are a good example. They're large. They don't collapse. You just have to have room for it. And it's another reason why you should really think hard about whether or not you're actually going to use it because it's going to take up a lot of space, whether you leave it out on your counter or you put it in a cabinet. And, you know, do you have have a space in a closet or a cabinet that's near the kitchen to keep that? Or is it going to have to go down in the basement? You know, if it has to go in the basement or an attic or a closet, you know, in another part of the house, you're that much less likely to use it because just pulling it out is going to be a chore. So it's it's definitely something to think about before you buy something. And I always tell people to to measure the space, especially especially for something like a coffee maker or a toaster oven that you're going to use all the time, probably every day, and not put away. Make sure that you have enough space for it to fit in your kitchen, see how much room it's going to occupy. And for a coffee maker where you have to fill it, how much, once you open the top, how high is that? Are you going to have to pull it out from the back every time you have to put the water in? Or does it, you know, the ones that swing from the side are easier to fill. So things like that are important for people to think about because they're going to be using this thing every day. And it's easy to get, again, it's easy to get seduced by things. Some of, you know, some of them are quite beautiful, but, you know, how much room are you willing to give up in your kitchen? And the more room you give up to your coffee maker and your toaster, the less room you have for your chopping board and for cutting and, and chopping and actually creating food. So important to think about. Um. Was there anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, we talked about this a little before. So just, you know, straying away from appliances a little bit, you know, I'll go back to talking about my career. Um, you know, I talk to young people quite a bit about their careers. I mentor people quite a bit. And I always encourage people to be open to opportunities and, to not be set in terms of what they want to do and and to take risks and and also you know looking at my own career I didn't know anything about microwave cooking I knew how to cook and I I love food and I knew myself that I knew how to write but I didn't let on that I didn't know about microwave cooking. Oh, and I, she also said, do you know how to develop recipes? And I said, oh, yeah, I develop them for the restaurant all the time, which really wasn't true. I, was, I, I didn't have a clue now that I think back on it. But I just said yes because I wanted the opportunity and I learned on the job. And, you know, in fact, I not that long ago heard a woman by the name of Sarah Moulton speak. Sarah Moulton, um, 
she's pretty well known here in the States. She has a TV show, but she got her start working for Julia Child. So she was a food stylist for Julia Child. And when she told her story, it was very similar. She said, Julia said to Tina how to style food. And she said she, she didn't have a clue. She was pretty much almost a child at the point. Uh, yeah, a true, Sarah was practically a child. She just said to Julia, oh, yeah, I know how to style food because she wanted the opportunity. And the rest was history. She went on to work for for Julia. Julia loved and mentored her. And Sarah's, you know, quite a TV personality in her own, you know, her own right here. So I tell people to take chances. Don't say no. I also say don't say no to any opportunities that fall your way. You know, sometimes it's uncomfortable. I mean, I hate to say it, but even tonight's, you know, a good example. It's like, my career is pretty well established. So at, here in, in New York, it's eight o'clock. It's now almost 10 o'clock at night. I don't need to be speaking to advance my career, but I like to take advantage of every opportunity that comes my way and not to say no. And that's what I encourage people to do. You know, look, don't look narrow, look big and don't say no. And don't say, oh, that's not the job for me because you know, things can open up in unexpected ways. And if it doesn't work out and it's not right, well, then you just turn around and say, well, that wasn't the right job for me, but I gave it a try. But I think, you know, there can be such wonderful opportunities that come your way if you just take some risks. And, you know, and one of really the great pleasures of my career have been all of the people that I've met along the way. And so many people have, you know, that I feel are truly friends of mine, people who work at cookware manufacturers and, you know, appliance manufacturers that I worked with over the years and that I feel are friends. And, you know, the other thing is they become friends and they also become resources for you. So for example, if I have a question about cookware or I have a question about how a range operates, I know exactly who to call and I'll get answers from people who might not even answer a cold email or might not even the per- be the person that the press contact would put me in touch with, but I don't have to write to the press contact. I know the home economist at the companies and, you know, you that's how you build a network, but it becomes rewarding. You get a sense of reward out, reward out of it and a sense of friendship and a sense of being part of a community. And in the end, you know, you, I think you have a richer life for it. So Mm. I always, you know, and I also, you know, sometimes people think they're old, you know, people at every age think they're too old for something, you know, people who are 25 think they're old because they're already five years out of college or they don't want to go back to college. I'm old already, or they're 35, or they're 40. You're never too old, you know, and you only get older, you know, (laughs) and the older you get, the more you think, wow, why did I think I was old at 25? Now it seems ridiculous to me. 25 seems, you know, more like 20 than 50, but you know, so I, I don't, I think sometimes people handicap themselves by thinking, oh, I'm too old or too much time has passed. And I think, you know, none of us know how many years we have ahead of us or how long we want to continue to work or, you know, how, 
you know, what life holds for us. So I think people should just take advantage of every opportunity that's offered to them and not limit themselves because of age or any other reason or because of skill. I mean, obviously, you know, there might be something where you just like, it's impossible. I'm, I'm never going to be a golfer, let's say. That's not going to happen. But, you know, I was able to learn how to use a microwave oven. And I was able to learn how to develop recipes because I had good cooking skills. So, so yeah, never too, too old to learn. And You're never to learn. And I yeah. say try to be the best you can. You know, I was always tried to be the best that I could at whatever I did. I always wanted, you want to be the smartest person in the room. You know, you want to know the most about as much as you possibly can about what you're doing and be as good as you possibly can at what you're doing. And, you know, it brings you great satisfaction in the end and makes you good at what you do. Because that's great advice. You know, because I feel in my career, you know, it was, it was my privilege to be able to give advice about kitchen equipment to, to readers and to consumers and to friends and even to other, you know, other journalists will come to me for quotes or for advice, because I feel like I was able to carve out something for myself. And again, I've always felt very open about sharing information. So you know, I've, I've never held back. I'm always, you know, unless something was truly confidential and whoever I was working for didn't want me to share the information. I've always been willing to, to share information because I feel like we're all in this together and let's help each other out. And again, you know, that was like, you know, brings me back to Cherry Bomb where we started. There was such a such a a wonderful feeling of community. And, you know, it really struck me that when people introduced each other at, you know, there were introducers at Cherry Bomb and whoever introduced the speaker, they didn't just get up and say, oh, she went to, you know, Boston University, and then she worked for so-and-so, and and then she worked for so-and-so, and and she wrote three books, and please welcome, blah, blah, blah. They really told personal stories about the people and what they meant to them and how they inspired them, and so that by the time that the actual speaker came out on the stage, they were practically in tears, and they would be, you know, hugging each other on stage, and the warmth and the feeling of love really came through to the audience that it wasn't just somebody who was given somebody's bio to read. Um, you know, and we are a community. That's how I feel. We need to do as much as we can to help each other, not fight each other and not try to carve out our own little pieces of the world. Um, that's a great sentiment. I definitely, I try to try to practice that. Oh, it's hard. It's, you know, it's not always easy to follow. I mean, that was another thing Rachel Ray said at the end of her talking about, you know, her philosophy of giving how she spends some money. She said, you know, sometimes things, you know, take a little shortcut in one. Sometimes you leapfrog over one to the other. But, you know, that's life. So, you know, I was willing to give that to her. And she certainly deserves to have some nice things for herself. So none of us are perfect. 
Yeah. Just try to be. What is a practice that you do? Uh, we'll move on to the sort of um, habit uh, aspect. Um, so is there something that you do every day um, in the kitchen? Uh, well, I... A good habit? Well, I... What do I do as a habit? I So I almost always, you know, almost every time I cook, I use fruits and vegetables. And usually the first thing I do is either pull out my salad spinner or a colander in a bowl to to wash things. If I'm if I'm washing lettuce that I'm gonna to want to spin dry, I'll pull out the colander and before I wash the lettuce I'll I'll wash all my fruits and vegetables. And that literally that's the first thing I pull out every day. Um, you know, we didn't talk about salad spinners. You know, if people buy whole heads of lettuce, I think a salad spinner is a great tool for drying it. But again, getting back to one of my original points, I think People should make sure they eat lettuce before they buy the salad spinner and not think the salad spinner is going to make them eat lettuce. But, you know, that's certainly one of my habits. And, you know, I have I have a, a small battery of tools that I use almost every time I cook. And one is a 12-inch chef's knife. I do rotate because I have so many. If my stuff gets dull, I'll just use another until it gets dull. Um, I use a peeler every day, you generally to peel carrots or cucumbers. Um, I have a, you know, I, those, I use that every day. I use those things every day. And generally I use a skillet. If I'm making pasta, I use a colander. Um, but I'm very, it's my practice to clean up as I go along. So very often, even if I have a dinner party at the end of the party, before I serve the food, everything is pretty tidy in the kitchen. You don't come into the kitchen and see a huge mess. I like to clean as I go along so that it just makes me feel better. And I'm constantly, again, talking about the cutting board, constantly wiping down the cutting surface in between. So that's very important to me. And as I said before, laying out my tools, knowing... I like to know where they are and I like to take the ones that I know I'm going to use and, and lay them out. And do you recommend um, getting prepped beforehand? Uh, you recommend that for everyone? I'm, I'm sorry, repeat the question. So you recommend getting everything ready and um, cleaning up as you go. You recommend that for everyone? I I recommend that people clean up as they go because it's more orderly. You can find things as you're working. When the meat, is, let's say you're making a roast, when you take it out to carve it, you have a place to put the carving board and you can, your knife and your fork are ready. And at, I'll take out the cutting board. I'll put the knife and the fork on the cutting board so that when the roast comes out, it's ready to be carved. And I don't have to move stuff away and find a space for it. And of course, it's, you know, great after you finish the meal to come into a kitchen. There's always going to be some cleanup, but it's great to not come into a total mess. And especially if you have company, you know, people, I tend to not want my guests to help with the cleanup. But when people come into the kitchen, if it's just a total mess, it's like, oh, my God, they're seeing this mess. And it's a lot more work for them. So I, you know. 
And it's just, you know, once you, if, if you don't have company, it's like after you finish dinner, you clean up is so much easier and you can that much quicker till you're on the couch and watching Netflix instead of uh, cleaning up. So I try to clean up as much as I possibly can ahead of time. That's great advice. Um, my partner does it. I need to do it a bit more. Yeah. I, I do have to say that during pandemic, my husband's become much more of a helpmate in the kitchen. And he's taken over, for example, the boiling of the pasta. So he's become an, an, the expert at that. And he'll grate the Parmesan cheese. Um and he'll help with the he'll help with the cleanup. I'm not always, you know, I don't feel like he uses hot enough water. That's the, I think that's a male female thing that women like hotter water. So I always feel like if he cleans up, the water's not hot enough. But um, yeah, I I always have the water as hot as I can stand, um, and I don't think it's clean until it's been in really really hot water. My partner's not like that at all. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a male-female thing mm -hmm. that women like hotter water. And, yeah, I always feel like, you know, on the one hand, I think, what am I looking a gift to us in the mouth? He likes to clean up the dishes, let him do it. But I'll come in and I'll feel them and I know the dishes aren't hot. You know, they're just not that hot. He couldn't have used hot water no matter what he says. But, you know, definitely before the pandemic, that didn't happen at all, so... There were some good things, I guess, about the pandemic in spite of it. I think that people in good relationships had a got a stronger uh, bond, I think, through the pandemic, um, at least in my experience. Yeah, I don't know anyone that didn't last. Personally, I don't know anyone who didn't last through it, but... Um... Yeah, yeah, I have one friend who complained that her husband is around a little too much. <laughs> but they're still together. But I would say it was a good that was a good thing for us. Try to be positive about even the pandemic. Um so next we're going to move on to questions from the audience. Um so I've actually answered quite a few of these already. Um, uh, what are some ways to make use of unused kitchen appliances? For example, I bought my dad a waffle maker, uh, for his birthday one year and he's used it precisely once. Well, point, <laughs> point made, you know, there are other things you could do with a waffle maker. So a waffle maker makes fantastic grilled cheese sandwiches because there's just so many more little crispy nuggets um you know you re it really could double as a panini maker but it is somewhat limited in terms of what it could do so i've you know other than give it to someone else or sell it i i really don't know what else you could do with appliances that you don't use find somebody who um, will take advantage of them. But a waffle maker is a good example. It's a single purpose appliance. I definitely learned my lesson after that one. I mean, <laughs> I was like 16, so, you know. Well, I, I will, you know, my daughter has a waffle. I, I have a waffle maker in the closet. I very, I probably used it three times other than when I was testing waffle makers. But my daughter uses it almost every day. She makes, she keeps the batter in the, 
refrigerator and she makes it for the kids before school every single day. So, you know, it's just one of those things, you know, for her, obviously it's a necessity. She, several times she's called me in a panic. It broke. Which one should I buy? I need a new one because she can't live without it. But, you know, for other people, it's like, and that's why, you know, you can buy waffle makers for two or $300, you know, don't buy a $300 waffle maker unless you know you're going to be making waffles every day. Mm. Um, so what's a common mistake for using uh, nonstick cookware? Um, I'd say the biggest mistake is using nonstick cooking spray. So that's a big no-no. It doesn't, first of all, it doesn't need the spray. And second of all, the spray itself will bake onto the finish. And when nonstick cookware gets tacky and hard to clean, it's usually because the spray has baked onto it. And so that's a really big no-no. I mean, other than that, I mean, most people know not to, to cut in it or should know by now not to cut in it. Even nonstick cookware that's metal safe, you, it's not going to scratch from using the metal, but it could degrade to some extent. Um, the other thing about nonstick is it shouldn't be used over very high heat. Um, it's, it's, for the most part, perfectly safe to use, but if you use it over very high heat, it could release fumes, so it's not recommended. You can go ahead and put it in the dishwasher. Sometimes manufacturers will say not to, but it really can, can go in the dishwasher. I think sometimes manufacturers themselves perpetuate myths, like sometimes you'll see a nonstick cookware manufacturer that'll say, waffle makers are a good example. Sometimes waffle makers will say, spray the nonstick surface with, with spray, and it's because they don't know enough about the nonstick surfaces to know they shouldn't be telling people to do that. Are there any precautions, um, you know, that you warn people about? Um, with equipment that maybe people don't know? Well, okay, we've talked about the nonstick. You know, I, I think when it comes to food safety, people have to be, I really encourage people to use a meat thermometer and cook food to safe internal temperatures. I think that's really important. And I think when you have a meat thermometer, you not only cook to safe temperatures, you also cook to ideal temperatures so you don't overcook food. But I think that that's very important. Um, I think, you know, again, when it comes to safety, if there's anything wrong with the cord at all, if the cord looks frayed or it looks worn, stop using that appliance. That's a danger sign. Um, people should always, you know, appliances get hot. People need to be careful about them. Be, you know, make sure you have potholders nearby. Don't allow children to use appliances unsupervised. Um, you know, I think general good common sense is important when it comes to appliances as it is with almost everything. Thank you. I think that's um, all the questions. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you. And I'm always available. If you have questions, just shoot them my way. Great. Um, I'll certainly do that. And thank you for, for giving up your time and yeah, coming on the podcast. It was really great to speak to you. The, the same here and wishing you and the audience a happy Easter holiday or whatever holiday they're celebrating at this time of year. Happy spring. Happy fall to you guys, right? Yes. 
<laughs> yes, and en- enjoy summer. Enjoy spring for you. Okay. Bye bye. All right. Bye. You've been listening to On the House, produced by the Household Management Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes like this from across 10 life management perspectives can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, and any other podcasting apps available on your smart devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, sharing, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people to find it so we can grow and continue to bring you quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website, hm.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Gabriella Yastra. Thanks for tuning in.